Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we have Mike Maffei. Mike is a Naval Reservist who did about four and a half years on active duty starting in 2006 and is now with Google. And we're going to talk about that journey. But Mike, welcome to the podcast. Tom, thanks so much for having me today. Really appreciate it. So Mike, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you're a California guy. I am California through and through with a couple detours overseas and then some time on the East Coast. Maybe just appreciate all the more of uh, that California weather. And the California taxes, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so March of 2006, you came into the Corps. And where did you start out? My first duty station was down in Port Wainimi, California at the CB base. I went to college in, in Los Angeles, California, and I had to look up on a map to see where in California Port Wainimi was. Pleasantly surprised at how close it was to LA and the hubs, if you will, of Southern California. But I really enjoyed the time there. I was a defense attorney at the then Nilso Southwest branch office, Port Wainimi. Met two really good friends who I'm still close with to this day. Greg Manns, who's on active duty, who I think he just came from Italy, he's now in DC. Duke Kim, who's a reservist, now living in New York. And it was just a great time. A great first legal job is how I describe my time in the JAG Corps, because I wasn't entirely sure whether I wanted to focus on litigation, where I wanted to be. And as you know, the needs of the Navy sometimes will make those decisions for you. And so it worked out really well for me. Got a lot of experience, got to travel quite a bit. And so it was a great tour overall. And we were talking before we hit the record button here. You got to go see beautiful Camp McCready in Columbia, South Carolina, and ended up in Baghdad, Iraq on your First Christmas Eve in the JAG Corps. I did. I had been on active duty in Port Wainimi for just shy of six months when I deployed. I volunteered for one of the IA assignments. And after going through, yeah, the Fort Jackson, Columbia, South Carolina, then some time in Kuwait for a couple of days in processing and then landed in Baghdad, Iraq on Christmas Eve, 2006. I was actually astonished at how muddy it was. But quite an experience. I think I I really learned a lot. Very formative to my professional growth as an officer and member of the JAG Corps. Met, again, some fantastic people during that deployment. I was mentioning to you, like my OIC at the time, then Lieutenant Commander Rock Detolve. We met during the Fort Jackson in-processing. Captain Steve Reyes, now Captain Steve Reyes as well. And stayed in touch over the years, but two fantastic guys who really helped me sort of think about my professional career developing as an officer. So it was Stressful at times, but definitely a great experience. Yeah. And if you remember what happened right after Christmas that year is when Saddam Hussein was executed. I remember that very well. Our workstation was a place called Camp Cropper, which was just adjacent to the Baghdad International Airport. And on that base was high-value detainees. So I recall very well the day hearing about that news. From Iraq, they sent you to Washington, D.C., What'd you do in your time in DC? Coming back from the deployment, I finished out my tour in, in Port Wainimi and asked to go to Washington, DC. Again, the needs of the Navy, you couldn't really say with certainty where you'd be going. And in fact, I didn't find out until the first day that I got in DC and checked on board at OJAG. And I was told I was going to what was then referred to as Code 7, which I think is now Code 51. I had no idea what that was. So I had to ask the person who helped me in process. 
and it was a law clerk to judges on the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals. I was astonished that they would just sort of hand out an assignment like that, knowing in the civilian world how like prestigious clerkships can be. And so I was like, absolutely, I will certainly go there. I didn't really know how long that tour would be. It turned out to be about 10 months, just shy of a year. And then the way the process worked then, I'm not sure if this is how it is now, but you do just around a little short of shy of a year clerking, and then you go to either appellate defense code 45 or appellate government code 46. I went to code 45, and that was my last active duty station before punching out and affiliating with the reserves. You did a lot of litigation and litigation type assignments in your four and a half years in the Navy. Absolutely. My entire active duty time, with the exception of the deployment, was all litigation focused work. Both summers in law school, I interned at the San Francisco District Attorney's Office and knew coming out of law school, I wanted to have a litigation type job. Now, whether that was a DA or JAG, which is something that I'd always thought about. In law school, my history of military service in my family, like my dad was an army officer, uncles, cousins, et cetera. And I was very fortunate with every assignment in the Navy on active duty, it was a litigation type job. But what I had sort of seen, the trend at the time was in order to advance in rank in the JAG Corps, you sort of had to leave litigation behind. That was big thing number one. And I wasn't ready to do that. Other big kind of issue that became clear for me was like most jobs in the military, you radically change jobs and location every two to three years. So oftentimes you'd be moving to a new job, litigation or otherwise, where your superior may have also had zero experience in whatever it was that you were there to do. That could be challenging at times. And I was looking for a little more stability in terms of career growth as it related to litigation. And I felt that really to learn I needed to watch and have as managers people who had done litigation for a long time. And sometimes that would be the case in the JAG Corps, but many other times that was not the case because you had someone who had done environmental law or whatever. And now all of a sudden they're the military justice department head. And that could be a challenge. I think the JAG Corps sort of worked to address that by creating the military justice litigation career track. And they're trying to do a better job, I think, of detailing folks with a lot of military justice experience to those jobs. But back in 06, 07, 08, that necessarily wasn't the case. And as we were talking, you've maintained your reserve commission after your active duty time. So you clerked with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, and that's where you ended up. I did. I got really fortunate as I was getting off of active duty. You know, I, I threw an application into the DA's office and, and heard back from the, the hiring manager, if you will, who remembered me from when I was an intern and I uh, flew out, had the interview and everything worked out. I was very fortunate. So I got off of active duty. I think like my last day was August 31, 2010. But with terminal leave, you know, I left a couple of weeks before that, just drove across country, packed up my things in my tiny Acura crashed on my sister's couch for the first like two weeks while I was working at the DA's office while I was searching for an apartment and all that. And, you know, everything all came came together, but it was a, you know, you're single back then you just kind of rolled with it. It worked out. So comparison between the offenses that you were handling on active duty, both as defense counsel and appellate defense counsel, as I'm looking at this, now you're getting into felony gang related cases with murder, attempted murder, robbery, burglary, assault, gun possession. Was that a quick ramp up or did you feel pretty well prepared or what was the lay of the land there when you switched over to the district attorney's office? I think in a lot of ways, the experience in the JAG Corps really prepared me for the fast paced life of a DA in like a big metropolitan city, you know, like San Francisco. But I'd say there were some key differences Number one, in the JAG Corps, at least during my time on active duty, there weren't nearly as many cases, as criminal cases, as there were, say, in a DA's office, which I 
probably makes sense if you know if you think about it. But that led to a couple things I think that hinder folks who are trying to get out off of active duty and land in say a big prosecutor's or public defender's office. Without that breadth of cases, litigation is a perishable skill set, I, sure. I firmly believe. And in order to get better and to maintain it, you've got to be working those muscles, so to speak. That means trying lots of cases. And I think in the JAG Corps, with the low volume and the trending downward volume as well, it becomes harder to do that. Dives or guilty pleas don't necessarily quite provide the same level of experience and training. Certainly, there's general advocacy skills that are honed by doing that. The same goes for administrative separation boards or admin boards. But again, the problem there, I think, is that the formal rules of evidence don't apply. So you're not honing those same skills like how to think about introducing evidence by overcoming a hearsay objection, for example, because hearsay doesn't apply you know, at admin boards. And often the rules of evidence are relaxed for guilty pleas or dives as well. So you've got to really be able to focus on getting that contested court martial experience while you're on active duty, because that's what translates in a resume. And we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in a little bit from a hiring partner's perspective, where I've been in that role as well. I'm looking for actual metrics on contested cases, contested court martials, trials to verdict. I'm looking for complex litigation. So you're filing lots of complex motions, not boilerplate motions in limine. You're arguing novel issues of law. We're looking for that sort of thing, I think, in the civilian sector, because just the reality is that the volume is so much higher. Like every day in misdemeanor court in the San Francisco DA's office, you'd have anywhere from 50 to 100 arraignments on calendar every day. You've got to go into court knowing, being able to separate quickly which cases you should settle, which cases you need to set for trial, or somewhere in between, right? And then I'll come Fridays when the trial calendar gets out, you will get flipped a handoff trial from one of your colleagues. And so you've got to be competent in your skill set to be able to, like, over the weekend, read through everything, prepare it, and show up in court on Monday ready to pick a jury and then kick off opening statements right after that. So there's definitely positives from the JAG Corps, but there are some, at least at, in my time, there were some deficiencies, which again, if you think about that, if you're transitioning out, I think an applicant could overcome those certainly, but those were some things I was thinking about as I was transitioning. So ballpark, how many trials did you do as a assistant DA in San Francisco? I'd probably say somewhere in the range of 40-ish or something like that. I was a DA for exactly four years, like to the month. Yeah. You know, my progression, I was misdemeanor unit for about five months or so, then to preliminary hearings for just about a year, a little over a year. But in that preliminary hearing unit, you're only doing that. Sure. Just prelims, no trials. So that was a year where I wasn't doing trials, but I was doing multiple prelims, you know, every single day, which is you're honing a skill set right there. Again, direct examination, cross-examination sometime, aligning facts to elements of crimes, dealing with objections on the fly, that sort of thing. Sometimes in prelims, you're also dealing with expert testimony as well. And then I went to the general felony unit, did the regular burglaries, robberies, assaults, trials, then to the gang unit, where it was more complex, multi-co-defendant, robbery sprees or attempted murders or kidnapping, carjacking, mayhem, more advanced crimes like that. In the vertical unit, so to speak, the homicide unit, the sex assault, the gang unit, you go to trial a little less than you would say in general felonies, but the complexity of the trials generally is a lot greater. And so you did that about four years, and then you moved up yep. to the as assistant U.S. attorney in uh, San Francisco area? In about the last year and a half or so that I was in the DA's office in the gang unit, it was about a year and a half. I might be off a little bit on the time frame there, but the volume of cases was enormous. And as a big part of a DA's job, I think, is just 
moving the docket or ensuring that there's a dispo or a disposition on cases and cases don't languish. So I found that my analog, the, the violent crime unit at the strike force unit is what it's called at the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco. They were very keen to adopt for federal prosecution cases I had indicted in state court. So I became pretty familiar with sort of the guidelines that the AUSAs in that district were looking for, for adopting federally state prosecutions. And so I'd be calling them regularly, like, hey, I've got this case. Usually, you know, they were like my best cases, right? And those are the ones the feds took, be that as it may. I developed pretty good working relationships with several AUSAs. And so while there was a hiring freeze around that time, when that freeze was lifted, I put an application in and was fortunate enough to get hired over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. When I chat with law students or others, JAGs who are thinking about getting out, I describe sort of DA work. It's very much like you are an emergency room doctor. You're an ER doctor where patients are lined up out the door and you've got to triage them all throughout the day. When an AUSA is more like the specialty, you know, the radiologist or the surgeon, you have a much lower volume of patients or cases but you're doing more complex work generally. And so, you know, is that, hey, you got to just get rid of cases, whether it's charge, have them go federal or whatever. AUSAs, you know, you're at your leisure picking your caseload. And so that the dynamic was very different, but I enjoyed practicing both in state court as well in federal court, but they're just very different dynamics. And so you were there for three years. So now tell us, how did you get over to Google? Sure. I mean, the short answer, what got me the job, I think is true for a lot of folks was, Knowing someone at Google who, and just being honest, right, who came from the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of California, we overlapped by about six months. She left for Google right when I started at the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had similar backgrounds, too, in the sense we both came from the DA's office and then went to the feds, which in the Northern District of California is fairly unusual. Most AUSAs in the Northern District of California come from big law firms. So I was like that odd man out there having been a DA. That is the short answer is because I knew someone in the office. But I think what helped me, hopefully what helped me, is that in the U.S. Attorney's Office, both in the General Crimes Unit, which is where all new AUSAs start, and then when I went to the OCDF, the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, where I did a lot of wiretaps, dealt with a lot of electronic evidence. You know, I'd be working with case agents to craft search warrants to electronic service providers like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, Dropbox, Snap, And so the disclosure of user data by providers like those companies I just mentioned is governed by a very specific statute, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which contains three major components, one of which is the Stored Communications Act that governs the disclosure of user data. So I became pretty familiar with the ins and outs of the Stored Communications Act, or the SCA, while an assistant U.S. attorney. And the team that I got hired onto at Google is the legal team comprised for the most part, almost entirely of former AUSAs or folks who worked at Maine Justice at like the computer crimes and intellectual property section, for example. But they would advise the compliance team, you know, the army of people who actually process the search warrants, subpoenas, and court orders for user data. So having the background of having sort of been on the other side, working with case agents to craft those legal requests and then interpret them when we receive them back to build cases I think that was part of the body of experience generally that the team looked for in new applicants. 
that's what the Security Council does. And you do other other things as well, but you, you know, a large part of it is protecting data and, and authorized release of data in response to court orders and investigations and subpoenas. My initial foray into Google, the team was structured that way, yes. But in the five years that I've been at Google, the team has gone through several reorganizations. And so now what was one team has now been split into two teams. There's the data disclosure strategy team, which does just that. I am not in that team. I'm on the security legal team, which actually handles information security, cybersecurity, and then trust and safety related legal issues for the company. I focus mainly on cybersecurity related issues now. As you look around your five years at Google, what is the lifespan? Do you have attorneys that have been there the entire five years or do you see a rotation of them going back to government, going back to law firms? Is it a constant rotation of people in and out? No, good question. It is a constant rotation of people coming in more so than people leaving. The company has grown exponentially in the time that I've been there. And now the economic times being what they are, and this is not secret information, you know, all companies in the tech world and other companies as well have announced they're slowing hiring during these economic times. Google, one of those companies as well. So while the team hasn't grown, the last individual we've hired on our team was approximately almost a year ago now, who coincidentally is Lieutenant Commander Randy Leonard, who is a Navy JAG who I worked with at the U.S. Attorney's Office for a time as well. He was our last sort of hire to our team. But prior to that, we grew pretty quickly. When I came on board the team five years ago at Google, I think we were like six or seven lawyers. Now we're about 14 or 15. So grew pretty quickly over those five years. And I think Google's a company I'm very fortunate, first of all, to be at, but very good quality of life. You know, the work-life balance thing that people are always talking about is, I think, fairly good. The work itself is always very interesting. And the individuals who I'm interacting with, the non-lawyers, which most of my day is spent on meetings with folks who aren't lawyers, they're all really interesting people, incredibly smart, and just really nice people to work with. So I think because we've got all those positives to the job, folks don't usually leave, (laughs) you know, like if they do, they, you know, they're fortunate enough to go on to bigger and better things like to go become like a general counsel, a startup or something like that. But there isn't a revolving door or anything like that where folks are at Google for a couple of years, then go to government and back. Usually you're here and you're here for the long term. You mentioned the last hire you did, which segues into that you've been on a number of hiring panels at the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and at Google. What is some advice that you would have for judge advocates, whether they're young and getting out or old folks who are getting out? Well, I'll divide that answer into two parts. So first, general, applicable to both categories, maybe younger folks who are doing just a couple of years in the JAG Corps and then looking to segue back into the civilian world. And then the second category, I'll talk for folks who have been around maybe 12, 15, 20 years. But applicable to both categories is a need, a critical need to interpret your military experience in a way that translates to a civilian. We are taught in the military, there's acronyms for everything. It's almost like its own unique language that takes a while to learn. You have to unlearn that when you are preparing a resume, a cover letter, a CV, because SJA to USS Abraham Lincoln is not going to mean anything to a civilian recruiter, unless by happenstance, that person happens to know what an SJA is and what the USS Abraham Lincoln is. So a way that I would rephrase that so that it is understandable to a civilian recruiter is to say, served as the in-house counsel to a team of 5,000 and covered areas of law, such as personnel law, administrative law, 
international law, criminal justice. I would take the military justice out because that won't mean anything. But you get my point. It's civilianizing the work that we've done, which, you know, I think a lot of, I don't want to say gravitas. There's a word that I, that's not coming to mind, but your currency, if you will, in the military is being able to adroitly use acronyms and military phrases that shows you're in the know, you're high speed, whatever you want to call it. You've got to lose that entirely because a civilian recruiter, or more realistically, at that first level of review after you submit an application, the artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithm that's going to scan your resume won't understand what any of that means. And you will not get that second look by a human recruiter. So you've already put yourself out of the game. So you've got to really work on revising your resume so that your experience translates Find the civilian analog for what it is you're doing and what it is you're looking to do and ensure your resume, your CV, and your cover letter say all of that. I would like to think I'm generous with my time to help others who are either in law school or young JAGs or older JAGs who are seeking to transition out of the JAG Corps into the civilian world. And Fridays are usually my day where I'm like, I'll chat with a person here or there. But one of the first things I always do is say, why don't you send me a copy of your resume and let me take a look at it. And if you're open to feedback, I'd be happy to give you that. Because a lot of you know, conversations around, well, here's where I want to go work. And what about this? Like, it's all great to have, but it's almost like a non-starter. If your resume can't articulate in understandable terms what it is that the, you know, the hiring entity will want to see. So I think that's first piece of advice applicable to both groups. The second piece of advice, and I think this is geared more towards the younger folks, in some ways also applicable to those who have been in for, you know, 10 years or more. But you want to be thinking about what your next move, and by next move, I mean, what is that next job? What is that first job going to be out of the JAG Corps? And then work your way backwards. Like if you want to go be an AUSA or a DA or a public defender or a federal defender or whatever, it probably will behoove you to take those jobs where you will get a focus on litigative skills. So whether it's trial counsel, defense counsel, clerking, appellate, you want to be looking for those sort of jobs so that your resume is current to that skill set. While it is very cool, I'm sure, to go be an SJA on a carrier or serve, you know, as the SJA to like a special warfare team or something like that. If you're going to get out right after that tour, you're probably going to have a harder time. It won't be impossible, but I think it will be more difficult landing that job if, you know, that SJA job is what your last job is in the JAG Corps. Better to try to segue into a DA's office or a public defender's office, having come from, say, a real so or a NILSO or something like that. It, I think, kind of goes without saying, but planning backwards from your goal and ensuring you're taking the appropriate steps to get there is a pretty critical point of kind of making that next move. Now, I think that advice is also applicable to those who've done 20 and are getting out or something like that. But the reason why it might not be is you have a much larger body of work, if you will, to explain in a resume. You know, careers in the JAG Corps can take various turns. You know, you could be doing litigation at first, then you go do environmental for a while, then you come back and do personnel or operational, you know, whereas I think the JAG Corps likes it when you've got a breadth of experience, but not necessarily a depth of experience. In the civilian world, the opposite is true, generally speaking. Civilian employers are looking for someone who's focused, who's specialized, who has that depth of experience, and that may be tough to get and still promote, I think, in the JAG Corps. And that that was sort of one of the reasons why I chose to get off of active duty. I still wanted to do litigation. I had had great assignments. I also thought I didn't think it was going to be, I was going to be able to go anywhere more fun or more interesting than where I had been stationed. 
And I thought it would be great to leave on a high note, you know, first of all, because my experience over overwhelmingly was positive. But I was also looking to continue my litigation career progression. And that just didn't jive with how I saw successful career progression in the JAG Corps going. So I chose to get off of active duty, but still remain affiliated with the reserves to scratch that itch. Yeah. And Mike, I know it was on the tip of your tongue. You wanted to call us the AARP group. And that would have been fine if you would have called us the AARP group, because I'm actually getting, you know, the, the notices from them. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's funny when you should say that, because I shared with you, I applied with a company for some jobs and, and I applied first as counsel with investigations. And, you know, I, I made through the screening and I got the feedback that, hey, I was up against people that were former assistant U.S. attorneys and people with relationships with the FBI. Okay, I can't compete with that. I got it. And then I ended up having a discussion with the the attorney that put the requisition out. And he said, hey, look, I've never served a day in the military, but my sense is, and he was looking at a targeted resume for me, that the Navy gives you a broad background and you really don't have a specialty per se. And I said, that is a pretty accurate statement for the, the most of us. And he said, you know, I think you would be better off as an operations attorney at one of our sectors rather than necessarily as an investigations counsel. Got it. It's the truth. It's a trade-off of staying 29 years as a member of the AARP group and you know taking duty <laughs> stations that are skis and stuff like that. And so it's it's feedback that I think is very helpful to those of us that are coming out. As you know, the Navy JAG Corps, we don't do contracting because our forefathers screwed that up in World War II. So the Navy General Counsel gets to do all that. So, you know, looking at that side, we're kind of at a disadvantage as compared to our Army and Air Force colleagues, unless we've picked it up by exception where we bear somewhere where we didn't have a GC Council. All of that, I would agree with. I think I tease out a couple more things, which I think you're alluding to in, in what you were just saying, which I think is a very marketable skill, if you will, for JAGs seeking to get off of active duty and go into the, the civilian world. But that is with the diversity of experience, you're constantly thrown into these new environments where maybe your manager, uh, your commanding officer or OIC does or does not know your job. Maybe that person is also just coming into that role from some other totally opposite career field, right? So what does that teach you? That teaches you how to, number one, not be afraid to try new things, not be afraid of taking responsibility, not be afraid of owning a project or a new area that is unfamiliar to you. And those are skills that any employer is going to look for. So it's a matter of teasing out those examples in a resume or a cover letter or in an interview, because a lot of the legal skills, not all, but many can be learned, can be read in a hornbook or a guide or just learned you know, through osmosis on the job. But those other intangibles, which I think the JAG Corps does a really good job of finding and dealing in folks, not being afraid to take on responsibility and see projects through to completion, those sort of soft skills. I think are very important that any employer is looking for. So it's a matter of sort of addressing those in a cover letter or a resume. And, and really then it's about getting your foot in the door to being able to talk about those things. Because I think I firmly believe, you know, the, the background, the training and experience you get in the JAG Corps is really second to none. It's just a matter of, as you go through the interview process, finding someone who can key in on that and then getting yourself in the door to, to get that interview. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have that you want to pass to the audience? I don't know if it's necessarily a question, but what I'd implore those who listen to this podcast and for those who are in the JAG Corps, either on active duty getting out or you were in, you maybe you still affiliated with the reserves. I would ask people to think about the mentors 
in your career past or those who have in any way helped you get to where you are today and make sure that it's a point of your professional practice that you try to do something like that to folks coming behind you. Because I am a firm believer, every single job I have held, I was woefully unqualified for, but someone for some reason on my interview panel took a shine to me and gave me a chance when I didn't deserve one. I know that firmly, right? And so I'm very grateful for every opportunity that I've had. I try to work as hard as I can, but I also try to pay it forward and help those who are coming behind me. So whether that's volunteer your time for resume reviews at maybe your law school for two L's or three L's or volunteering with veterans associations. Like my company has a really robust veterans network where we hold career fairs for active duty or vets or their spouses who are trying to get into tech. And we'll do mock interviews, resume reviews, things like that. Make yourself available. Set aside some time each week. Again, like I try to do that on Fridays. I can't say I do it all the time because work, you know, gets in the way. But being able to, as best you can, pay it forward so that others who come after you get the same breaks that you experienced because someone chose to take a chance on you, I think is, is critical. That grows the profession. That's part of like being a profession, right? What a profession is. You are, you're training and nurturing and mentoring those who come after you to build up a body of knowledge and ethics and good behavior. And it's just, I think, a good thing to do and a nice thing to do. And, and it, you feel better. It's just a be, it's better karmic, you know, wise, whatever you want to call it. So that would be, it wasn't a question that you didn't ask me, but a pitch, if you will. And I think your show goes a long way to doing that because you're bringing folks in to share helpful advice that then gets disseminated to the listeners. So I'd ask the listeners to, if you're not Think about doing something like that. Great gouge, Mike. Appreciate the time. I'm glad that we were able to link up. And as always, these are invaluable. Well, I very much appreciate yours. Thanks so much for having me on uh, the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.